Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. Hope you are doing well. Hope you're dealing with things. Things are a lot. And to help you cope with, you know, stuff, here's a podcast about war crimes and human rights violations. Uh, my guest today is author and lawyer and scholar Michel Paradis. And his book, Last Mission to Tokyo, is about a trial that followed World War II. Now, I try not to talk about World War II too much on the show. Um, World War II is probably the most covered history thing ever. There's no shortage of, you know, books, movies, TV shows, podcasts, whatever about it. Uh, but there are still undercovered bits of it, like my series about Italian fascism, for instance, uh, which you should go back and listen to if you haven't already, or what we talked about on this show. Uh, the book Last Mission to Tokyo is about a trial of some Japanese officers who were accused of violating the human rights of and executing uh, captured American servicemen. Uh, it was just fascinating to read. Uh, as I mentioned in the interview, I read it in basically two sittings because it had the format and structure of a detective story or legal thriller, but it was a real thing that happened. And that's like candy for me, basically. Uh, I also have just an interest in Japanese history in general. Uh, I've mentioned several times and I mentioned in the interview that I used to live there. So that's something that will always pretty much reel me in if you got a book or a documentary about it or what have you. Uh, on the interview, you'll notice that our audio quality was a little off. We did have some technical issues going into it, so my voice is going to sound a little weird. I tried to fix that as much as possible in post-production, but there is only so far you can go with that. Uh, unfortunately, audio editing and post-production is, is not magic. And we do the best we can. But hope you enjoy our talk. Here is Michelle Paradis. Michelle Paradis, hello. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, before we talk about the book, though, I wanted to ask about your your background. You've written what's essentially like a narrative history legal thriller, and that is something you have experience with. Correct. Uh, the the writing, no. The legal thriller part, yes. Um, okay. I've I've spent uh, much of my career as an attorney being um, a lawyer in war crimes cases, uh, and that uh, a significant number of those were in Guantanamo, but other places like Africa and even Guatemala as well. Um, and so it, the book is a story about that that really centers on a war crimes trial. Um, and so yes, I, I I could very much relate to many of the characters uh, that I ended up writing about. So the book centers around the Doolittle Raiders, who I think a lot of folks would have maybe heard about through cultural osmosis or be kind of familiar with because, you know, people always know, have the base details about World War II. Um, it's not really about the Doolittle Raiders per se, but it centers about them. But to refresh people, um, what were the Doolittle Raids and who were the Doolittle Raiders? Sure. So, um, you know, Imagine yourself in early 1942. Uh, Pearl Harbor has been attacked. 
but not just Pearl Harbor. Uh, the Japanese were on the march throughout the Pacific. They had ousted the British, the French, the Dutch, and the United States from uh, their colonial possessions, whether or not it was in Shanghai or Singapore, or most significantly for the United States and the Philippines. Um, the United States has entered the war in Europe uh, with a North Africa campaign that is at best not going well. Um, and everywhere it seems that the Axis powers are on the march. And Roosevelt is frantic to get some kind of response to rally the public to, to the idea that this is a war not just worth fighting, uh, but that actually can be won. And so demands a counterattack on Japan, which is no small feat in 1942. Uh, Japan had never been attacked from abroad before. The closest anyone got was Genghis Khan in the 13th century, and his fleet was wiped out by a freak typhoon uh, that went down in Japanese lore as the kamikaze. So J Japan really did have a sense of its own invulnerability from attack from abroad. And that was a perfectly logical conclusion, um, not just based on the fact that no one had ever succeeded in doing it before, uh, but just the technology of 1942 didn't allow for it. Um, you know, planes just couldn't travel that far, certainly not with any uh, significant payload on board. And so what the Doodle Raid was, was uh, a plan ultimately hatched and developed by a, a stunt pilot by the name of Jimmy Doolittle, who had uh, left private industry to, to serve in the United States uh, Army Air Force at the beginning of the war. Uh, and he was both a stunt pilot and uh, a brilliant engineer with a PhD from MIT. And he figured out using just the basic calculations of weight, fuel, and time, um, how to get 16, what ended up being uh, 16 medium range army bombers off the deck of an aircraft carrier, um, only a few hundred miles off the coast of Japan on what was understood at the time to be a one way and potentially suicide mission over Japan to strike against Japanese military targets in Tokyo, Kobe, and Nagoya. Um, the Doodle Raiders succeed in doing this on April 18th, 1942. All 16 planes, despite the clear demand of physics, uh, get off the aircraft carrier and not only get off the aircraft carrier, fly all the way to Japan, and not a single one is shot down. Uh, it's a humiliating attack against Japan. Uh, Japan has has its, essentially in one afternoon its national myth utterly shattered. Uh, it really does begin to fear what this war could mean for its own safety for the very first time. Um, but that's also not the end of the Doolittle Raiders story. Uh, the 16 planes don't get shot down, but only one of them lands on its wheels. And that plane ends up landing because it's almost out of fuel, ends up landing uh, in the Soviet Union where the crew is detained for the next year. Uh, in a prisoner of war camp because the Soviets are neutral with Japan. They can't be seen as helping the United States. The 15 other planes crash land uh, in China uh, and, and in the East China Sea, sort of off the coast of China. Um, but somehow miraculously, all but three members of the 80 men that Doolittle leads on this mission survive. Um, and then all but eight of those um, escape to freedom inside uh, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist China. And so the story, as you said, picks up, um, it starts with the Doolittle Raid, um, but ultimately tries to tell the story of those eight raiders who are actually captured by the Japanese, um, and then the aftermath uh, of what the Japanese do to those eight raiders, and then what we do to the Japanese who uh, ultimately commit atrocities and even murder against the Doolittle Raiders they had captured.
So, yeah, in the opening chapters of the book, uh, several of the raiders have been captured, and they're all sentenced to death. A few of them get executed, but a few of them have their sentences commu- uh, commuted to life imprisonment, if I'm remembering that correctly. Yeah, that's right. The emperor commutes. So eight are all put before a, uh, a show trial um, and sentenced to death for committing atrocities against the Japanese. That's the charge against them. Um mm-hmm. And the emperor uh, ultimately commutes the sentence of all but three of them. The two pilots and the one gunner uh, are actually, set, you know, ultimately sentenced to death and executed in October of 1942. The five others are sentenced uh, to life imprisonment under special conditions. Um, and what that actually means is solitary confinement, um, a severe lack of food and adequate medical attention. One ultimately dies of wet berry berry, which is essentially uh, starvation. Um, in a Japanese prison, uh, one of the other uh, doodle writers almost dies of starvation at the very end of the war and is, is essentially miraculously rescued uh, in an Office of Strategic Services operation, essentially just in the nick of time uh, so that he can be nursed back to health. Uh, but three ultimately you know, are able to, to leave on their own legs uh, and they're rescued from a prisoner of war camp in Beijing, China uh, at the very, very end of the war. So... Also, to make it clear here, a few things happen. Um, Japan at this point has not signed the Geneva Convention, but they kind of want to abide by the principles of it. And also they end up passing a law that applies retroactively to the Doolittle Raiders so they can execute them. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really fascinating, you know, certainly for me, one of the more fascinating aspects of this research was getting to know wartime imperial Japan far better than I certainly did, you know, growing up, you know, with a sort of ordinary education about World War II in the United States, um, where there's a kind of, you know, there's a tendency, I think, to think about the Japanese as just Asia's Nazis. Um, And what I ended up sort of discovering in the research for this book is that Japan in that period was a far more complicated um, country with a far more complicated political history than... I certainly had been led to believe, and that made the decisions that its political leaders made, including the attack on Pearl Harbor, but also the carrying out of atrocities against prisoners, um, far more um, almost understandable, and not in the sense of any way of justification. But what it, you know, Japan is a is, was essentially a very fractured society politically. Um, a lot of the decisions it made in the context of the war were done as essentially political compromises between two diametrically opposed visions of what Japan uh, should be. On the one hand, Japan had been really for the previous 50 years, um, one of the leading lights for international liberalism around the world. They had had their own essentially enlightenment uh, and democratic revolution at the end of the 19th century. And so we're actually one of the very first countries to sign the Geneva Conventions in 1929. Um, The idea that Japan was an important world power, a model state um, was very important to urban Japan um, and and the sense of Japanese identity. But on the other hand, you had um, a kind of a revanchist movement that tried to look back to Japan's sort of pre-modern period um, to go back to more traditional ways of life. And those were ultimately Japan's, they had ultimately, um, and and that faction ultimately had a significant amount of sway in Japan's army. Um, And so over the course of the 1930s, largely through violent politics and terrorism, uh, Japan's government 
essentially becomes beholden and captured to um, what can only be described as like a fascist clique within the military. But at, at no point is the government ever ruled by a single dictator, like an Adolf Hitler or Benito Mussolini. Uh, Hideki Tojo, you know, I've always described to people as much more of a John Boehner kind of figure. So this this sort of hapless politician who's who's just desperately trying to like manage these two utterly hostile factions who at any moment might kill him. Um, and, you know, and people forget, you know, Tojo is ousted as prime minister during the war. Um, he, he doesn't actually serve out uh, his tenure to the end, the very end of the war. Um, and and so, you know, not only the Geneva Conventions, but, uh, you know, what ultimately happens to the dual liberators inside Japan's it, is the product of like essentially this fraught debate and effort to compromise within these irreconcilable factions within Japan's government. Um, and a lot of it is frankly done, and, and this is something I could kind of relate to as a lawyer, uh, a lot of it is frankly accomplished through clever lawyering, and I would say over-clever lawyering, right? Very outcome-oriented, the worst kinds of reputations, say, you know, that, that lawyers have, the butt of every, you know, the, the punchline of every lawyer joke. Um, you know, Japan is a highly legalistic and highly bureaucratic society. And so a lot of the terrible things they do, including the passing, as you said, of this ex post facto law to prosecute the dual liberators, um, is, is you know, the product of, you know, putting a lot of pressure on clever lawyers to come up with a, a pretext for executing um, these eight men um, that, that can, you know, pass the smell test of legality, even though the outcome is clearly determined from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, I, I used to live in Japan. I lived there for about two and a half years, and I can confirm it is extremely bureaucratic. Uh, even <laughs> that's true today. Yeah, that's still true. Yeah. Um, but uh, a lot of the book is about a trial that's about a trial. Um, much of the book seems to be centered about, um, you know, American lawyers looking into a Japanese trial and trying to suss out the like legality or fairness or sense of justice that went around in somebody else's legal system, which I thought was interesting. And you divide the book into like the prosecution and the defense side. So I was wondering, like, could we speak about like the prosecution who is trying to, um, you know, find these, you know, Japanese guys guilty of the execution of the dual raiders? Like, what does their case rest on? Like, what is their argument? Yeah, you know, writing the prosecution case was, you know, super fascinating and satisfying for a lot of reasons, which I'm happy to get into. Um, but, you know, the, the, the lawyer who ends up putting the case together is, you know, a 40-year-old draftee in the Army uh, who gets himself into the, you know, U.S. Army JAG Corps um, during the war and, you know, serves in, you know, not in an undistinguished way, but just not doesn't do very much that's all that interesting throughout the war and um, basically is working a desk job and gets the file on uh, a report of what had happened, essentially the tale of the three Doolittle Raiders who are rescued. Uh, they describe a lot of what happened to them in Japanese custody. And there is just a chomping at the bit to find the Japanese officers, soldiers, whoever is responsible and to execute them. Uh, this is the immediate post-war period of 1945. Roosevelt himself, act, after the um, Dual Raiders were executed and it was it was published in the news, du uh, Roosevelt himself promised to have the Japanese uh, who did it personally held responsible. And so Dwyer is essentially given this, you know, pretty open-ended task. Who is responsible? 
Um, and the solution he ultimately comes up with is the people who are most responsible are the people who uh, were the, the Japanese soldiers, uh, including the Japanese lawyers and judges who put the Doolittle Raiders before a show trial. Um, not only did that show trial justify their executions, in a sense, was the paperwork to murder, um, but it also, you know, was built on all sorts of irregularities, legal irregularities, um, such as the fact that it was an ex post facto law, such as the fact um, that the evidence that was used to prove the Doolittle Raiders were guilty of atrocities was uh, all derived from extremely brutal torture, uh, things like waterboarding, stress positions, um, the, you know, isolation, uh, you name it. And so Dwyer ultimately basically decides the best way to get justice for the Doolittle Raiders, the people who are most responsible, are the lawyers who perverted justice in order to not only carry out these murders, but to essentially launder torture. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a brilliant innovation, right? It's a completely innovative, it's a complete innovation in international law at that point. Um, and one that, you know, as the book sort of develops, you know, ultimately has incredibly important legacies uh, that are still valid today. Um, and then on the defense side, you know, no one, no one wants to defend the Japanese who are responsible for executing and torturing the Doolittle Raiders. Um, you know, this is 1945, 1946. Um, it is the Doolittle Raiders are, you know, they, they, to some extent, faded from popular memory today. Um, but in 1945, 1946, they're the, probably some of the most celebrated heroes of the entire World War. And so they can't really find anyone who's really eager to represent the Japanese. Um, and they ultimately tap uh, a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force uh, by the name of Edmund Bodine, who was not actually a lawyer. Uh, he had gone to a little bit of night school uh, before he became a pilot. But he um, was not a lawyer. Uh, I don't think anyone anticipated that he would actually try and mount a defense. He was not, frankly, qualified to mount a defense in such a complex capital case, no less. Um, and his story is, you know, he, he takes the case for the, the worst possible reasons. Uh, essentially, he falls in love uh, with a Russian woman in Shanghai, China, where all of this is taking place and is at risk of being sent back home because he's not really doing anything any impo important anymore, right? He had been a co decorated combat pilot during the war, um, but there was really no reason to keep him around in Shanghai. And so he basically takes this job as an excuse to stay with this woman he's fallen in love with. Um, again, probably not anticipating having to do all that much, you know, that, that the train uh, toward the gallows is, is, is an express one, right? There's very little he thinks he's even going to be in a position to do at the start of this case. Um, but as the book details, you know, he ultimately, he ultimately just commits to it, right? He commits to his role as the defender of his own enemies. Uh, he commits to the idea that there are higher values at stake, um, not the least being truth and justice that he's there to fight for. Um, and, you know, very reluctantly and through, you know, suffering a great deal of professional consequences as a result and reputational con consequences, um, he nevertheless takes up the cause of the of the Japanese war criminals. And so that by the time the trial happens, um, you have this, you know, real clash between two really idealistic uh, young lawyers who are, you know, both fighting for a, um, you know, a good faith, well-reasoned argument of what 
truth and justice requires. Um, and that's what really made the book a lot really satisfying to write. Um, it's tricky because there aren't sort of traditional villains, right? There's not one villain everyone's sort of um, fighting against, you know, in, as in a sort of a traditional hero narrative. Um, but what made it really satisfying to to research, especially and then to write, um, was you know the opportunity to really wrestle with two people who are opposed to one another, um, wrestling for both you know very understandable, very um, important visions of what's good and right. Um, and so that that's what made the book a lot of fun to write. I mean, I gotta say that um, maybe it's a string a bit far afield from the book, but. Uh, right now, in this time we're living in, it was actually very refreshing to read something that was about uh, idealism and good faith argumentation and people like accomplishing things by presenting evidence and making good arguments about things that could provably have happened or not have happened. That was that was a nice bit of escapism. But thank you. I'll take that. I'll take that as a very positive review. <laughs> um, but one of the I. I don't want to like spoil like some of the twists the story takes, but I feel like this is also important to um, mention. Like one of the things that ends up happening is that you talk about how the doodle raids were received in Japan. And mm. one of the things that uh, in the United States, it's like these guys were heroes. Like they did this amazing, daring thing. First people to attack Japan since like the Mongols did. They had movies made about them where they were these like mythologized doomed heroes. Like there's the Purple Heart where guys who actually survived are shown going to the gallows, but turns out they lived, which must have been awkward for them coming home. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but in Japan, uh, it was all about this school that ended up getting strafed. And there is one kid in particular who ended up dying. Uh, and like that was their picture of the dual raids. And how how does that play into the defense side of the book and that part of the book? Yeah, I, you know, I mean, that, that was another, again, just, you know, I mean, a joy in a way to write, um, to have an opportunity to really try and, you know, ab absorb a different perspective on um on american history it, you know, i mean it, it's it, it's rare that you really get an opportunity to do that um and this provided I, at least some vehicle for me to think about you know what did the doolittle raid mean to the japanese um and what does it still mean to the japanese and you know the the only analogy that i i i could come up with and it's one that i think a lot of people can relate to is that the doolittle raid was japan's 9-11 you know, much like as the United States, you know, had this sense of, you know, invulnerability before September 11th, right? We don't have a history of engaging in foreign wars on our own territory. There's this sense that, you know, our oceans are our moat. Uh, Japan had that same sense in 1942. Um, and so when the Doodle Raiders conduct this air raid over Japan, um, you know, they're bombing factories, people are killed, they're dropping incendiary bombs, right? Incendiary bombs on a place like Japan, which is made of wood, are designed to start major fires. Uh, and they do in the suburban areas of Tokyo. Um, as you mentioned, there's, you know, there are schools that are strafed, civilians uh, in, in fishing boats who end up getting strafed and injured and killed in, in at least one circumstance. Um, and so, you know, for the Japanese, that, that sense uh, you know, th they're confronting for the very first time a real sense of personal vulnerability. Um, and quite naturally, that, that sense of vulnerability f 
leads them to focus on the tragedy of the Doolittle Raid. Um, and so even today, the Doolittle Raid is understood in Japan um, as the first of a series of tragic bombing raids by the United States in the Second World War. Um, I, I actually went to one of the schools uh, that's described in the book, and uh, there's a memorial in the school the way you would expect there to be in you know any school in America if there was, a, for example, a school shooting or some great tragedy had taken place at a school. Uh, there's a children's book uh, written about the Doolittle Raid from the perspective of a Japanese child who who is killed in the Doolittle Raid. Um, and so the defense uh, of the Japanese, um, when they go to court, you know, in, in the in the war crimes trial, the army, U.S. Army war crimes trial in 1946, where the U.S. Army is trying to put the Japanese on trial for uh, murdering the Doolittle Raiders, torture, perverting justice. Um, one of the main efforts of the defense attorneys, uh, the, including this pilot, um, you know, who, who is, again, completely unqualified to do this, but does it just out of a abiding sense of right and wrong. Um, you know, they take it upon themselves to present the Japanese perspective on the Doolittle Raid uh, in a, a U.S. Army courtroom in 1946, right? To describe that as, you know, an act of real moral courage is to not do it justice. That's an incredible thing to do. Like, no one wanted to hear that in 1946, not the least, you know, uh, five army colonels who, are, who know that their job is to execute uh, these Japanese who executed America's greatest heroes. Um, and, and so that was just a remarkable and really just in a joy and, and a really satisfying part of the book to write was to, to really, you know, see, again, people kind of wrestling with what is true, what is just, um, and, and really, and, and, and resisting the inevitable temptation that we all have, especially in war, um, to stereotype, to dehumanize, to, um, to just, you know, take perfect solace in our own righteousness. Um, they, they refused to do that. They actually made this trial a fair trial by making it about the truth. Um, and, and that was just to me, again, a, a real joy to be able to, to kind of just see that kind of idealism uh, at, at play in reality. <laughs> uh, are you okay with talking about um, the verdict and the ending? Or do you want to like, I don't know, leave that so people read the book? Because uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you... It depends. I, you know, I mean, I, what do you think? Do you think people would be less likely to read the book if they know the ending? I mean, it's, it's really hard to spoil something that actually happened, but I, right. I really <laughs> that's sort of, uh, Sorry, because the ending, it's like, it is very unsatisfying, but it also seems very just. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, maybe we, do you want to leave it that vague? Uh, sure. we could describe yeah, it that way. Cause that's a great point. I, I'd never put it that way, but that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, because if you were if you were to end a movie like that, or if you were to end a legal thriller with how this actually turns out, you would probably think like, "Well, that's it." But you know, reflecting on it, your thought, your, uh, my thoughts were like, "Oh no, that actually was like a, a good outcome for everybody involved." Um, one thing I do want to ask you about, though, is um, I read this book really quickly. Um, I probably read it in two big bursts um, because there was a lot of that like legal thriller sort of law and order um, mystery novel stuff going on with it. Did the structure of those kinds of narratives inform uh, how you wrote it? Like, is that something that you were thinking about uh, when you put it together? 
Yeah, it was, you know, I mean, it was a really challenging book um, to, to write in part because, you know, it, this is not a story that's ever been told before. And a lot of stories or at least very close stories have been, you know, I mean, like it, like if you're writing a story, um, you know, about Pearl Harbor or you're writing a story about Midway or you're even writing a story about the Nuremberg trials, right? There's a lot of precedent to go to, to kind of understand what the narrative beats are. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't really have that <laughs> with this. And so I, it was a sort of like, it was, it, it, it was a really, it made it, uh, I had to go through at least one or two drafts um, to actually get it to be a book that, you know, I mean, as you said, kind of reads more like a legal thriller than, you know, a standard legal history. And I, I really have my editor to thank for that, who, who was just brilliant and, and took me to task for being boring every top opportunity she could. Um, and so, yeah, so ultimately, you know, I mean, I had to kind of figure out what kind of book this was as a narrative. And uh, my main model um, was, you know, really something like a Law and Order episode. Um, and if you, you know, not to not to pay, put too much uh, to demystify the the process too much, um, but if you actually look at the structure of the book, um, it it basically follows the standard Law and Order episode, you know, structure. Uh, you have the, you know, the the crime uh, at the beginning. Uh, you have the um, you know, the prosecutor, they have the police sort of investigation and the building of the case in the middle. Um, you have the twist, which is here, the defense case, and then you actually have the trial um, where everything, you know, kind of plays out. And we look to, we look to sort of the combat of trial to, to understand what truth is and what the just outcome should be. Um, and so, yeah, so it, it's a great question. Um, and, and one, I, you know, I mean, I don't know if too many people ask or, or think to ask, um, but yeah, it was, it was a really initially starting it, especially as, especially coming at it as like a legal scholar, um, and looking initially thinking about it as a much more traditional legal history, um, uh, finding, finding a narrative, finding how to tell the, what actually happened in the story in a way that, that got its significance across was a real challenge. And ultimately law and order <laughs> was, was the key to all of that. I always like to ask this, uh, the folks, is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that you feel is important to speak to? It's a, I'm trying to think, uh, I, no, I think this has been a great conversation. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not, I don't feel lacking. I don't, I'm not waiting to say something if that's your question. Um, uh, I have, I have one more thing for you. Uh, I appreciate sure. that on page 318, you used the term sesquipedalian, which <laughs> is one of my favorite words, which means basically prone to using very long words. And uh, that's great. Thank you for that. Yeah, uh, I, I, do, I do my best. I do my best. All right. Uh, Michelle Paradis, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank you. It's been a, a real pleasure. And again, I'm a big fan of your show. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. I have a link over at weirdhistorypodcast.com where you can go find Last Mission to Tokyo. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Hope you do as well if you decide to read it. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed this show. We are on Apple Podcast, other networks. Go give us stars, reviews, uh, those type of things. That does algorithmic magic that helps other people discover the show. So please do go rate and review us. That helps a lot. Uh, I am on social media. I am at Joe Streckert on Twitter. You can follow the show on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.